Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right. Thank you, Sophie. I want to start by thanking the students of the TI chapter here at St. Vincent's for the invitation to be here with you today. Everybody can hear me? Okay, great. The title of my talk tonight is Human Flourishing and Disability, a Thomistic Approach. I'm going to start with a story which comes to us from the well-known 20th century priest and theologian, Henry Nouwen. During the last decade of his life, Nouwen lived at the Larch Daybreak community in Canada, where he was the pastor. If you haven't heard of L'Arche, it's an international organization that exists to welcome, serve, and empower those with disabilities by forming communities where disabled and non-disabled persons share a home and a common life. In Nouwen's beautiful and moving book, Adam, God's Beloved, which was the last book he wrote in the last year of his life, he tells the tale of Adam, a disabled man with whom he lived at L'Arche. Adam was severely cognitively and physically disabled. He was never able to speak and never said a word his whole life. He was an epileptic who had daily seizures and was confined to a wheelchair most of the time. He was completely dependent on others and needed assistance with all of his day-to-day activities. When Adam was institutionalized in his early adulthood, he struggled and suffered greatly. But when he moved into the Larsh home, he thrived. He was accompanied by others in all of his daily activities in part because there are very few things he could do himself, and in part because community is what L'Arche is all about. In the book, Nouwen describes how Adam had a transformative effect on the people who knew him, especially the way he broke down their internal barriers to love, self-acceptance, and inner peace. Reflecting on the moment when he looked upon Adam's body at his wake, Nouwen thinks to himself, Here is my counselor, my teacher, and my guide who could never say a word, but taught me more than any book, professor, or spiritual director. Here is Adam, my friend, my beloved friend, the most vulnerable person I have ever known, and at the same time, the most powerful. Adam's life wasn't perfect, and he didn't fare well in every respect. He faced a good deal of hardship, to be sure. And yet, Nowen presents him as a shining example of a good life. He even says this, Adam's humanity was not diminished by his disabilities. Adam's humanity was a full humanity, in which the fullness of love became visible for me and for others who grew to know him. Now, many people will find Nouwen's judgment surprising and puzzling in light of common assumptions about human flourishing and disability. The lives of Adam and others like him highlight the questions we're going to explore today. First, they raise the general question of what human flourishing really is. Second, they raise the specific question of how we should understand the relationship between disability and human flourishing. Now, because this is the Thomistic Institute, and because I think Aquinas' approach to human flourishing is the correct one, I'm going to explore these questions from a Thomistic perspective. Ultimately, I'll argue that disability can teach all of us, Thomists and non-Thomists, important lessons about human nature and the human good. Here's the plan for the talk. First, I'll briefly lay out the Thomistic approach to human flourishing in general. Next, I'll show why disability poses an important challenge to this approach. 
After that, we'll examine two more specific Thomistic accounts of the human good, which I'll call the intellectual model and the relational model. We'll explore the implications of both models for disability, which will lead me to argue that the relational model is superior on this score. To start off, what is the Thomistic understanding of human flourishing? The first thing we need to do is get clear on exactly what we're talking about. By human flourishing, I mean a life that's good for a human being, a life that goes well for the one living it. Philosophers often use the terms well-being and welfare to refer to this concept, and Thomists traditionally use the term happiness. This kind of goodness, the kind that deals with benefit and harm, is conceptually distinct from other kinds of goodness, such as a person's moral goodness or a person's intrinsic dignity. For example, on a Thomistic view, all human beings, disabled and non-disabled, have equal inherent value and dignity. But that's not the kind of value we're exploring tonight. There are competing theories of the nature of human flourishing, which put forward different candidates for the thing that's intrinsically and fundamentally good for us, the thing that makes all good things good and explains why they're good. Some of them are subjective theories that say that a good life is ultimately about pleasure or desire satisfaction, enjoying life or getting what we want. Others are objective theories, which hold that things can be good for us independently of our subjective attitudes, whether or not we enjoy them or want them. There's some dispute about how to categorize Aquinas's view, but according to the dominant reading of Aquinas and the mainstream approach in the Thomistic tradition, human flourishing is objective and consists in two central things. The first is the fulfillment of human nature. What's good for us is developing and exercising our natural human capacities and attaining their natural ends. For example, knowledge is good for us because we have intellectual capacities that are directed toward truth. Freedom is good for us because we have volitional capacities that make us autonomous agents. Friendship is good because we have social powers that fit us for relationships. Beauty is good because our emotional powers equip us for aesthetic experience. And life and health are good because we have physical powers that are aimed at proper organic functioning. This theory of goodness is often called perfectionism. The second aspect of human flourishing is virtuous activity. What's good for us is cultivating and exercising the virtues, being excellent in all the ways we can be. This includes moral virtues like justice, courage, and temperance, intellectual virtues like prudence, understanding, and intellectual honesty, and theological virtues like faith, hope, and love. Virtuous activity involves having a good character, possessing habits of thinking, feeling, desiring, choosing, and acting in excellent ways, and performing good actions doing the right thing, fulfilling our moral obligations, and so on. This theory of goodness is often called eudaimonism. The Thomistic picture of human flourishing includes both nature fulfillment and virtue. Both kinds of goodness are ultimately rooted in human nature. Nature fulfillment is obviously about human nature, and from a Thomistic perspective, so is virtue. One of Aquinas' definitions of a virtue is a perfection of a power. When somebody acquires, develops, or exercises a virtue, she perfects her nature in some way. The virtues equip us for excellent intellectual, volitional, social, emotional, and physical functioning, and they help us attain the ends that fulfill us as human beings. On the Thomistic view, virtue is not sufficient for flourishing, but it is necessary for and partially constitutive of flourishing. Cultivating the virtues is one of the ways we fulfill our nature and increase our well-being. 
It's important to clarify at the outset that, because I'm a philosopher, in this talk I'll be thinking about human flourishing philosophically rather than theologically, and I'm focusing on flourishing in this life rather than in the next life, what Aquinas calls imperfect happiness rather than perfect happiness. We don't just want an account of what perfect flourishing will be like in heaven, we also want an account of what imperfect flourishing is like on earth. And we don't want one that covers only the supernatural dimension of infused virtues and goods attained by special divine grace, but one that also covers the natural dimension of non-theological virtues and goods. More could be said about this general Thomistic picture of the human good that I've laid out, but this will be enough for our purposes today. Next, we'll look at one of the most important objections to this approach, which has to do with its implications for disability. I'm calling this the disability objection. There's dispute over what terminology should be used when we talk about disability and what disability itself really is, but I'm going to sidestep these debates and just use disability and impairment interchangeably to pick out the conditions that our society typically identifies as disabilities. Some examples include blindness, deafness, Down syndrome, autism, quadriplegia, and cerebral palsy. According to the disability objection, the Thomistic approach has a highly problematic view of the relationship between disability and human flourishing. It implies that being disabled is simply and straightforwardly a bad thing that harms people and makes them worse off. Those with physical impairments might be unable to develop their physical capacities and participate in goods such as physical functioning, work and play, the appreciation of beauty, or exercise virtues with a significant physical component, such as temperance. Those with cognitive impairments might be incapable of developing their intellectual, volitional, social, and emotional powers, and participating in goods such as knowledge, autonomy, practical reasonableness, friendship, and beauty. Or exercise most of the virtues, since they are perfections of the rational powers of intellect and will. In short, the objection alleges that the Thomistic approach tends to exclude the disabled from human flourishing or at least implies that disabled lives are less good than non-disabled lives. One worry we might have is with any view of human flourishing that tends to exclude entire groups in this way. The bigger problem, though, is that this view of disability is mistaken. Many disabled individuals can and do have very good lives, just like the non-disabled. One piece of evidence for this conclusion comes from the testimony of the disabled community. Empirical research indicates that the majority of disabled people report to have a high level of happiness and well-being. Although some might unreflectively assume that the disabled rank their well-being lower than the non-disabled do, this isn't the case. In most studies, there's no significant difference between the two groups when it comes to self-reports about their well-being. A second and stronger reason to think that the disabled can thrive are the real-life cases we can observe. Adam, whose story began this talk, is a compelling example of a flourishing life with disability, and there are countless others like him. When one visits a large home like the one Adam and Nowen lived at, one cannot help but be struck by the powerful and undeniable example of disabled people living full and thriving lives. In summary, the testimony of the disabled community and the living, breathing evidence of good disabled lives are grounds for thinking that the flourishing of the disabled is a fact that a correct theory of the human good must recognize. The problem, according to the disability objection, is that the Thomistic approach fails in this respect. 
applied to the case of Adam, it says that he can't flourish because his severe physical and cognitive impairments prevent him from fulfilling his nature. But as Nowen shows us, this seems to be the wrong answer. The picture he paints of Adam's life is one that's rich in human goods. In fact, Nowen says the exact opposite. Adam's humanity was not diminished by his disabilities. Adam's humanity was a full humanity. For some critics, this is a fatal problem for the Thomistic approach and a reason to dismiss it out of hand. The theologian and disability scholar Hans Reinders, for one, argues that it should be rejected because it excludes the disabled from human flourishing. As he puts it, because it defines the human good in terms of our capacities for reason and will, there is no way in which human beings with a profound intellectual disability can be said to participate in the human good. The reason is that their potential for developing the capacities inherent to human nature is very limited indeed. Reinders alleges that, quote, the framework of Aristotelian Thomist metaphysics creates the danger of an anthropological minor league for human beings with profound disabilities, on which it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that the lives of these human beings could be anything but subhuman. Ultimately, Reinders condemns, quote, the negative account of disabled lives, evil, defect of nature, limitations, and sufferings that follow from the Aristotelian Thomist concept of the good. He's not alone in rejecting Thomism on the basis of its perceived implications for disability. We'll return to this objection in due course. First, we need to examine two specific Thomistic accounts of human flourishing, which are based on two different conceptions of human nature and the human good. The differences between them will be highly significant for the topics we're discussing today. Then we'll explore their implications for disability and consider how they fare against the disability objection. To introduce these two Thomistic models of flourishing, it's helpful to start with their historical inspirations, which can be traced to Aristotle and Augustine. Aristotle famously teaches that to be human is to be a rational animal. The distinctive rational capacities are the intellectual capacities for abstract thought and logical reasoning, and the volitional capacities for free choice. And the distinctive human function is rational activity, which includes both theoretical and practical rationality. Eudaimonia, happiness or human flourishing, is an activity of the rational soul in accordance with virtue. Aristotle also teaches that human beings are social animals by nature. He argues that friendship is necessary for happiness and we can't flourish without friends. While he recognizes the importance of human sociality, Aristotle puts primary emphasis on the intellectual aspects of human nature. For him, the intellect is the locus of the self. He says, the intellectual element in him is thought to be the man himself. The supreme virtue is an intellectual virtue, either theoretical wisdom or practical wisdom or both. And the human capacity for theoretical rationality is the most valuable one. In Book 10 of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle argues that intellectual contemplation is the highest and most perfect kind of activity, and the philosophical life of study is the best way of life. For Aristotle, the best goods are goods of knowledge, things like wisdom and contemplative understanding. On this intellectual model, the intellectual human capacities and their corresponding intellectual goods and virtues are the most valuable and important for human flourishing. Augustine's view has a lot in common with Aristotle's, including the understanding of humans as rational animals 
and the importance of intellectual capacities, goods, and virtues. But he offers a different picture of human nature that prioritizes sociality and relationship. For Augustine, working within the Christian tradition, to be human is to be a creature made in God's image with a spiritual soul capable of communion with God. Augustine famously begins his confessions by saying to God, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. His whole life story, as recounted in the Confessions, can be seen as his quest to find happiness in all the wrong places, ending with him finally experiencing rest for his restless heart in an intimate, loving relationship with God. In Augustine's view, the highest good is union with God, which involves the complete fulfillment of human nature as well as perfect virtue. Augustine understands union with God as a loving union among persons. He says, God is the source of our happiness, and he is the end of all desire. In electing him, we set our course toward him in love, so that when we reach him, we may be at rest, blessed because made perfect by the one who is our ultimate end. For our good, the final good about which there is so much dispute among the philosophers, is nothing other than to cling to him by whose incorporeal embrace alone the intellectual soul is filled and made fertile with true virtues. According to Augustine, the supreme virtue isn't wisdom, but caritas, or love, a relational and theological virtue of the will. For him, the best goods are goods of personal relationship, both with God and with others. On this relational model, the social capacities and their corresponding relational goods and virtues are the most valuable and important for human flourishing. When we come to Aquinas, we find a system that has both Aristotelian and Augustinian elements, which isn't surprising because Aristotle and Augustine are two major influences on his thought. His view contains strands of both the intellectual and the relational models. In some ways, Aquinas is more Aristotelian. Seen through this lens, Aquinas endorses the same basic picture as Aristotle, but he adds Christian theology and personal immortality to the mix. The emphasis here is on human flourishing as nature fulfillment, and the basic line of thought goes as follows. Happiness consists in the type of activity that perfects the highest human capacity. The highest human capacity is the intellect's power of theoretical reason, and the best human activity is contemplation, which is construed in terms of propositional knowledge or understanding of the ultimate causes and essences of things. Happiness is mainly a contemplative activity of the speculative intellect, rather than an activity of the will or the practical intellect. God is the best object of contemplation because God's essence is truth itself. So, happiness is found in the contemplation of the divine essence. On this reading of Aquinas, happiness consists essentially in union with God understood as an intellectual activity, intellectual union, and speculative knowledge of God, a function of the intellect understanding God as truth. Union with God is the peak of human flourishing because it involves the highest degree of nature fulfillment via the good of knowledge. In other ways, though, Aquinas is more Augustinian. Seen through this lens, Aquinas understands union with God primarily as a relational phenomenon, in which one attains happiness through a personal connection with a personal God. The emphasis here is on human flourishing as virtuous activity. Like Augustine, Aquinas maintains that charity is the supreme virtue, and he defines charity as friendship with God. Charity is an essentially relational virtue. As Aquinas puts it, 
Charity signifies not only the love of God, but also a certain friendship with Him, which implies, besides love, a certain mutual return of love, together with mutual communion. He says that the divine human friendship involves interpersonal closeness, spending time with one another, conversing with one another, enjoying one another, and doing good things for one another. On this perspective, knowledge of God is understood in terms of acquaintance knowledge of persons. Union with God involves mutual indwelling between a human person and God. The two live and dwell within another, one another in a literal ontological sense. On this reading of Aquinas, happiness consists essentially in union with God understood as a relational activity, interpersonal union, and personal knowledge of God, which is a function of the will-loving God as a person. Union with God is the peak of human flourishing because it involves the highest degree of virtuous activity via the love of God. In this brief historical sketch, I've highlighted some important features of Aristotle's, Augustine's, and Aquinas's views of human flourishing, and I've identified two major streams of thought in the Thomistic tradition, which are represented by the intellectual model and the relational model. The difference between them is not one of inclusion, but one of emphasis. All three thinkers affirm the importance of rationality and relationality. It's not an either-or, but a matter of primacy or priority. Thomists should have a view that contains both, but they should also ask which human capacities, goods, and virtues, if any, are the most valuable. Here it's important to keep in mind that I'm thinking of these two models as philosophical accounts of earthly flourishing, not theological accounts of heavenly flourishing. The models are easier to harmonize if we're talking about the state of union with God in the perfect happiness of heaven, where the supernatural dimension of grace changes things. But I'm focusing on the imperfect happiness of this life, which includes a very different kind of union with God and more than union with God. In this context, the differences between the two models are greater, and they are competing perspectives on earthly flourishing. It matters which one we choose, because it has significant implications for certain issues like the ones we're exploring today. Now, seeing these two aspects of Aquinas' thought and raising the question of the intellectual versus the relational model can make one feel like a very torn Thomist. I, for one, sometimes feel like a torn Thomist, and maybe some of you do too. There are really two separate questions here. One is the interpretive question of how to read Aquinas. Is Aquinas' own view closer to the intellectual model or the relational model? I won't address this interpretive question today. Instead, I'll focus on the second one, the philosophical question of which account is correct. Now, people who are associated with the Thomistic Institute might assume the answers to both questions must be the same, but it's possible that even the angelic doctor is wrong from time to time. Our question is, if we want to have a Thomistic view of human flourishing, is the intellectual model or the relational model more promising? To help us answer this question, we can return to the issue of disability. One consideration that can help the torn Thomists decide between the two models is looking at their implications for disability and seeing how they fare against the disability objection we saw earlier. We'll do that now, and it will put us in a better position to decide between the two options. I won't give a complete analysis of all the ways that disability can impact well-being, negatively or positively or neutrally, which is complicated and demands a longer treatment. Instead, I'll highlight some general tendencies of the two models. 
let's consider the intellectual model first. On the one hand, it doesn't necessarily entail that disabled flourishing is impossible or exclude all disabled people. For example, someone with physical impairments who develops his intellectual capacities and attains intellectual goods to a high degree, someone like Stephen Hawking, say, might be able to flourish despite being disabled. On the other hand, this won't apply in the majority of cases, which can't be explained in terms of intellectual goods. Worse, the intellectual model does tend to exclude many of the disabled from human flourishing, especially those with cognitive impairments. Cognitive disabilities impede the development and exercise of the intellectual powers and the acquisition of the intellectual virtues, especially those involving sophisticated rational capacities, such as theoretical and practical wisdom. They also reduce or preclude one's ability to attain intellectual goods, especially high-grade ones like wisdom and contemplative understanding. The disabled are either severely limited or totally powerless in their ability to actualize these capacities and participate in these goods and virtues. Since these things have the greatest value, it seems that the disabled either can't flourish or have lives that are much less good. For these reasons, the intellectual model is open to the disability objection. As we saw earlier, the thriving of the disabled is a fact that a correct theory of human flourishing must accommodate and explain. The intellectual model gets the wrong verdict in many cases, and it lacks the explanatory resources to make sense of disabled flourishing. I think this is a serious problem with the view. We can drill deeper and identify two major sources of the problem. The first is the model's hierarchy of value. As I've explained, if we prioritize intellectual goods and virtues as the most significant for human flourishing, those who are unable to achieve these things are excluded. By putting so much value on intellectual fulfillment, the bar for flourishing is set too high for many people to reach. The second is the philosophical anthropology behind the model. Because the two aspects of human flourishing, nature fulfillment, and virtuous activity, are rooted in human nature, a flawed conception of human nature will lead to a flawed picture of flourishing. The intellectual model focuses on the intrinsic properties of human beings, ones that can be identified by looking just at the individual herself and nothing outside the individual. And it centers on the powers of the human intellect. Disabilities impair the development and exercise of a person's intrinsic intellectual powers and thus impede nature fulfillment and virtuous activity. What about the relational model? Does it do any better in terms of its implications for disability? I think it does. It can recognize the fact of disabled flourishing, provide a better explanation of it, and cover a lot more of the cases. To see how, we can return to the story of Adam, and we can recall Nouwen's claim that Adam's humanity was a full humanity, in which the fullness of love became visible for me and for others who grew to know him. Nowen identifies the key to Adam's flourishing as the fullness of love. Examples like this could be multiplied at length. Earlier, I spoke about the good lives that can be seen in disabled communities like L'Arche. Its founder has said that the secret of L'Arche is relationship, meeting people, not through the filters of certitudes, ideologies, idealism, or judgments, but heart to heart, listening to people with their pain, their joy, their hope, their history, listening to their heartbeats. The stories of Adam and others like him 
illustrate that even the severely disabled are capable of high relational flourishing. They're shining examples of humanity because of their loving relationships, where they connect with others in deep and life-changing ways. According to the relational model, the reason why many disabled people flourish is that relational capacities, goods, and virtues contribute the most to well-being. Even if it's the case that impairment sometimes makes people worse off and reduces their well-being to some extent, relational well-being can make up for it. If their lives are rich in loving and fulfilling relationships, it's enough to make them good lives on the whole. People with physical and cognitive impairments can still fulfill their social nature through the goods of personal relationship and the virtues of love, which are the key determinants of human flourishing. To be clear, I'm not claiming that all disabled people can flourish relationally. Some disabilities can hinder people's social development and fulfillment. I'm also not claiming that this explanation applies to every single case. There are other ways for disabled people to thrive, like Stephen Hawking, who I mentioned earlier. But I do think it applies to the majority of cases, and it's the best explanation of why many disabled individuals flourish. The relational model avoids the two pitfalls of the intellectual model by proposing a different hierarchy of value and a different philosophical anthropology. First, it holds that relational goods and virtues have the greatest value. These are more available to the disabled than the intellectual ones are. By comparison to the sophisticated rational capacities that are required for high-grade intellectual goods and virtues, the social capacities necessary for relational ones are much less affected by impairments. Physical impairments don't prevent people from social thriving, and neither do most cognitive impairments. One reason is that personal knowledge is easier to attain than contemplative or speculative knowledge. The main kind of knowledge involved in personal relations is direct, immediate, and non-inferential acquaintance knowledge of persons, which isn't the same thing as propositional or factional knowledge about persons. Personal knowledge requires far few conceptual and intellectual resources than propositional knowledge and speculative contemplation. Another reason is that charity, the most important relational virtue, is easier to acquire and exercise than wisdom. Following Aquinas, we can analyze charity as willing the good of the other and willing union with the other. Having and acting on these desires does not require very sophisticated physical or cognitive powers. The relational model also has a different conception of human nature that focuses on the relational properties of human beings, ones that make essential, essential reference to something external to the individual, and centers on the social capacities for personal interaction and second personal I-thou relations. Aristotle says that human beings are social animals, but the relational model goes beyond this by holding that the second personal dimension is primary for understanding what we are. Augustine's theme of the restless heart is a fitting expression of the core idea. The human heart is made for relationships, and the most important fact about us is that our nature is a nature for someone else. Rather than understanding human fulfillment as a function of intrinsic properties, this view places more emphasis on relational properties and sees human beings as radically social creatures who are built for interpersonal connection. Going a step further, the relational model can explain why disabled persons flourish not just despite, but sometimes because of their disabilities. This may sound surprising, but it's one of the lessons to be learned from our disabled brothers and sisters.
being disabled can better enable them to have relational goods. A disabled person may be able to reach a greater level of flourishing than she would have without her disability because being disabled is more conducive to the formation of relationships and the cultivation of relational virtues. This was the case with Adam. As Nowen illustrates, the reason Adam thrived at Larsh was his social life. He was lonely and isolated in his former hospital setting, but at Larsh he was always with friends and family. Despite his limitations and his inability to speak, he was able to form deep personal connections, which enabled him to have a profound impact on Nowen and many others. Adam stands out as an example of a socially fulfilled human nature because of his loving relationships. Not only do such people flourish, some of them achieve a luminous kind of relational flourishing that can teach the rest of us a thing or two about being human. They're able to connect with others in ways that non-disabled people often find difficult. Being disabled allows them to have deeper and closer bonds than they otherwise would have. Impairments that limit them in various ways can open them up in ways that make them better able to form friendships and to love others in charity. At places like Larsh, the disabled relate to others using atypical forms of communication and interaction with a high degree of vulnerability, dependence, openness, honesty, empathy, uninhibitedness, genuineness, and a sharing of one's full self. This approach can be more conducive to relationships of loving union than the ordinary ways that non-disabled people typically relate to each other. And since relational goods and virtues have the greatest value, this means that many disabled people actually experience a higher degree of flourishing than many non-disabled people because they have more of the most important goods in life. They don't focus on pursuing things like intellectual achievement, athletic prowess, autonomy and independence, fame, wealth, or beauty as their primary goals. Instead, they focus on what matters most, other persons. So paradoxically, although their lives may lack some of the things that we think matter for a good life, they can outshine many others and be more fully human because they have what Nowen calls the fullness of love. To wrap up and conclude, we've explored the relationship between human flourishing and disability from a Thomistic perspective. We've seen that disability poses a serious challenge to the Thomistic view of the human good based in human nature. We examined two different ways of developing a Thomistic account of flourishing, the intellectual model and the relational model, and we looked at their implications for disability. I argued that the intellectual model can't adequately recognize or explain the fact of disabled flourishing, whereas the relational model can. An approach that focuses on the social aspects of human nature can avoid the problem of excluding or devaluing the lives of the disabled and thus can diffuse one of the strongest objections to Thomism. It can also explain why many disabled people are examples of robust human flourishing. This means that the disability objection is not a good reason to reject the Thomistic approach in general because there's at least one version of it that avoids the problem. I think that reflecting on disability can help the torn Thomist work out an understanding of the good life, and it gives us a reason to favor the Augustinian relational view over the Aristotelian intellectualist one. This isn't the only relevant consideration, and there are other arguments for and against both views that need to be considered, but I do think it's a significant and underexplored issue 
and it highlights a big advantage of a relational approach that prioritizes relationships and charity. It also teaches us an important lesson about what it means to be human. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.